Everybody good today? Good. We've been doing this thing for the last few weeks. Sort of doesn't make a lot of sense if you just look at it on the surface, but we started, I guess you'd call it a series that started with quit going to church for Pete's sake. Not for Pete's sake, for anybody's sake. And we talked about that for a while with the idea being that um, attending worship services, going to a building and, and sitting in rows and doing the things that we usually associate with going to church doesn't really mirror what we see in the first century, in the early days of the church, those first Christians and the life that they lived, as their relationships and the community they built was so vital that when they got together, it was an extension of what was already true of them. It wasn't something they did out of habit or duty. And last week, we talked about the idea of you should quit saying your prayers, that this, this thought that we should, again, by duty or discipline or whatever the motivation is, go through these rote recitations of words that we've learned, whether it's, uh, now I lay me down to sleep, or God bless this food and prepare it for the nourishment of our bodies, or whatever the case may be, um, that those aren't the realities of prayer we see in the first century, but rather we see a dynamic of this group seeking God and having intimacy and conversation with him in a way that empowered them to reach out into that world in the way that we're still sitting here today because of what they did. And so today, keeping in that vein, I'm going to suggest that you quit reading your Bible. Yep, I said it. Just quit reading your Bible. You say, well, wait a minute, preacher. This is like the anti-church. That we come into the wrong place. It does still say Baptist on the sign, right? Yes, it does. It doesn't. And just like the last few weeks, I want to explain a little bit about what that means because I know we have some people here that like to read, right? I'm related to one. I see one in the office regularly. Um, there's a lot of people that like to read. What are some of your favorite books? It's okay. You can admit it. Maybe. What? Animal books? Anything with animals. Yes, Drake, you love uh, the animals. One day you will be doing that. Clark, what do you like to read? What? Long chapter books. Doesn't matter what they're about. I got some long chapter books for you. Science fiction fans? Okay, good. Yes, anybody excited about the new Star Wars film coming out in... Let's see, today's the 18th. That would be two months from today. Not that I'm paying attention, yes. Uh, let's see. Uh, what are they, uh, history. I heard history. I like to read history. Yeah. A lot of that. I know we have some folks that love to read history and study history. A lot of, well, why do we read? There are different reasons you might read. Some people read, like, history books for information. You want to learn something. And, you know, the Bible can teach you some things. In fact, you may be familiar with this acronym, Bible uh, standing for something. I think I put it on a slide. We'll see if it works. Basic instructions before leaving earth. You've heard that. That's the Bible. In fact, some people refer to the Bible as God's instruction manual. And then in the next breath, they say, why don't men read the Bible? Because men don't read instructions, right? Am I right? Or am I right? So, guys, it's not an instruction manual. Don't hear that. No, and then we say that because 
know, we're trying to give an idea to it. And there's some instructional things. There's some very practical stuff in the Bible. If you read it, well, you'll get something out of it. Um, some people read to escape. It takes you to faraway places and to far-off lands and to a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Did I mention Star Wars is out in two months? No. We escape in, in reading. And if you want to see some pretty crazy places, you can read about them in the Bible. The Bible takes place uh, in a different age when things were a lot different. And we see a span of time. And you can really escape even to a much simpler time. Some people read um, because it's entertaining. Just, just kind of a diversion. They want a distraction and, and just enjoy something. Hey, you know the Bible's pretty entertaining. Like, for instance, did you know there's an actual story in the Bible where someone was sitting listening to a preacher? And I guess the preacher was a little long and maybe boring. And believe it or not, this fellow fell asleep. I know it's in the Bible. Not only did he fall asleep, but he fell out of a window. I don't know why you sleep in a window. I guess the, the church was pretty crowded. Fell out a window and died. That's in the Bible. Isn't that exciting? That's entertaining, isn't it? You know, like, no, that's just life. Okay, maybe maybe it's this. Or how about, uh, I remember when we were studying Elisha? You remember my, one of my favorite stories? When the kids made fun of him, the young men made fun of Elisha because he was... You know what he did, right? Six some bears on him. It's in the Bible. It's in there. Anybody seen the movie Shrek? Yeah. Who's your favorite Shrek character? Donkey. You know where they got that idea? Talking donkey in the Bible. I'm telling you, it's in there. It's an entertaining book. Sometimes we, we get that. And, and so we, we have an inspiration, maybe, would be another idea. And if you want to find an inspiring book, there's probably no better book than the Bible. But, but as much as those are reasons that we read, I don't think that's the way we should approach the Bible. I think the Bible is made for more than just to inform us or to help us escape or to inspire us or even to entertain us. It is full of so much good stuff. And, and in it, we see a means to a greater end. In fact, if we were to go back and, and examine uh, Moses' life, we see one of the things said about Moses that was really fascinating is that Moses talked to God like a man talks to a friend, which is a remarkable thing. And in Exodus 33, there's a passage where Moses has this interaction with God and maybe gives us a glimpse into what we can find through this book we call the Bible. In, Mo in Exodus 33, verse 12 and 13, Scripture says this, Moses says to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and, I and you have found favor with me. So we know that. We say God knows us. He has the hairs on our head numbered and all those sorts of things. But then listen to what Moses says. He says, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. God, teach me your ways for a reason. And teach me your ways not just to inspire me or to entertain me or to inform me, but no, teach me your ways 
so that I may know you. When we have in our hands this book we call the Bible, it is the means by which we can do what Moses asked God to do for him. We can learn God's ways, not for any of those other reasons we might pick up a book, but so that ultimately we might come to know God. The Bible isn't information or instruction or inspiration. It is an instrument of a relationship with the living God of heaven and earth. It is not just another page that we turn to get to the end. It is something more than that. Let me illustrate it this way. How many of you ever wrote or received one of these notes in high school? Next slide should be there. I'm I'm counting on it. Do you? Anyone? What's the most important box you want to see checked? Maybe. That's what, maybe, I, maybe I was kind of a, a sad sack. I was just rooting for maybe. <laughs> it was better than no, right? I, I wrote a few of those along the way. and The most memorable of which was in high school chemistry in 10th grade when the young lady, a cheerleader that I thought was a very lovely young lady and was interested in her, gave her this note. You know, I'm in 10th grade and I'm writing this note. My maturity level is a question here, but nonetheless... Um, I thought it was my chance in chemistry. I was a pretty good student. She sat beside me on purpose. I thought, maybe that's a sign. And she would often interact with me in class on purpose. And I thought, maybe that's a sign. And so one day I got the nerve to write this note. It was shortly after one of the big tests in our high school chemistry class. And she wanted my help and wanted to study with me on purpose. And I thought, this is a sign. And I wrote this note and gave it to her. And she ripped it up and threw it at me. I'm not scarred or anything. But there it was. Now I know some of you fellas here. How many of you wrote love notes to your sweeties? Come on, admit it. You penned those love notes. You poured your heart and soul out in them, and you gave it to her. Now imagine, I just wrote down some responses that maybe would mirror how we look at the Bible when we just read the Bible. Imagine that you gave not just this note, but but a love note, like expressing all the qualities in that young lady that you found so attractive and expressing your feelings to her. And the next day, she said, here, I wanted to give you something in return. And it says, I'm so happy that you gave me that note broke up the boredom in my life. It was so very entertaining. I hope you'll write more. Wouldn't that be lovely? Wouldn't it make your heart go pitter-pat? How about this? I got your note just in time. It helped me forget my troubles and escape just a few minutes from the demands of life. Thank you. that be nice? Wouldn't you want that back? Guys, that's why you poured your heart and soul out, right? How about, your letter was wonderful. I learned all about proper grammar and handwriting. No. Your letter touched my heart. Oh, this sounds good. You helped me believe in myself and gave me hope for a future without you. No. Maybe not. 
I mean, sometimes that's what we pick up the Bible and maybe get out of it, just those sorts of things. And, and all of those things might be valuable, but they aren't the reason that God would give us his word. There's more to it than that. There's a bigger picture that God would speak to us through it and that we might come to know his ways or learn his ways so that we might know him. There's a lot at stake in picking up that book you call the Bible and reading it. It is as if you are sitting down with God and much like we talked last week about prayer as a conversation, in reading scripture, and reading the Bible, there's an opportunity to learn of God and about God and about his ways that you might come to know him. One of the words that often shows up in the Bible about it in particular is the word truth. Thy word is truth. Sanctify me with the truth. Uh, I think that's in the book of John. Um, we, we talk about Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we, we talk about the Bible as being that which gives to us the very truth of God. And there's a verse, I didn't put it on the screen, but it's one you might be familiar with. It says this, you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? That's, that's pretty amazing. Do you know people in your world, in your circle of acquaintances, that could use a little being set free? People that are caught in various cycles of maybe addiction or abuse or other things that, that have captured them. They've got, they're wrapped up in it. One of the things that, that we have in, in this book, which is the Word of God, which is truth, is, is the fact that it will set us free from those very things that bind us up. And there's something dynamic about that kind of truth. And if you think about the world we live in, I, I don't think it's a stretch to say the truth of Scripture, the truth that God would reveal to us, is very much under attack. And it's ironic to me that the more it's under attack, the more bound up we as humanity seem to get. The more we want to distance ourselves from Scripture, the more and more and more we distance ourselves from God and from the very thing that will set us free from the stuff that's got us all wound up in the first place. And, and in a world that is increasingly seeking to sort of marginalize truth, and I think the bigger agenda of anything that you want to talk about culturally isn't about a particular moral situation or behavior. It's really about how can we somehow distance ourselves from any claim that God would have on our life, any truth claim that Scripture might place on us, any rules or commands or whatever words you want to use in that vein that would be we would be subject to. I think there, that is the ultimate agenda, not a particular thing, but the greater thing. And, and here's where we as Christians, are kind of caught. Because we who believe the Bible are increasingly told that we are things like judgmental or hateful or intolerant. These are words that are probably buzzwords thrown around a lot. And when we look back at the life and ministry of Jesus, one of the phrases that the phrases that I like the most that encapsulate him early on in the Gospel of John, it says, We beheld the glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus was a very gracious person. 
In fact, he got in trouble at times for being so gracious. When he would love people, accept people, even converse with people that society would say, you shouldn't have anything to do with. And yet at the same time, he never compromised truth in those interactions, in those situations. He all, I mean, he would say things like, he who is, out, who is without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone and shame the people so that it says in the Bible, from the oldest to the youngest, they dropped their stones and went away. And then he turns to the woman who is about to be stoned, and what does he say to her? Go and sin no more. Grace and truth somehow perfectly balanced in him. And the temptation that we have, I think, as Christians in our day, is so we don't get labeled as all of those negative things. We try to be increasingly gracious. And the danger that we can face is somehow we will put aside this book we call the Bible, the truth of Scripture, in the hopes that people will see us as more loving, as more gracious, as more kind, as more compassionate, whatever the phrase may be. But what we don't realize is we are going to start what will be an incredible domino effect. Hey, anybody watch AGT? America's Got Talent? No? Okay, well, there a few years ago was a guy on there that did dominoes. And just because I figured not all of you watched it, I want to show you the dominoes he put together. This is pretty remarkable. I think we have the video. Pretty remarkable. I, I think in, over the course of the, the season, he had two or three different times when he did set the dominoes up. And he would take hours, days sometimes, to get everything working together just right so that that first domino, when it went, would start that chain reaction. We're familiar with that. Some of us have probably done that in our homes. Never to that degree. But I think what's happening and what we have to guard against in our world, in our lives, is that very kind of domino effect happening when we put aside the Bible for whatever reason. Maybe because in the busyness of our lives, the idea of picking it up and reading it and having time for it is tough. Maybe the idea that it can seem, as is often said in our culture, an outdated book. It was written the earliest parts that we have written 2,000 years ago, some thousands of years before that, how could that sort of a, a book with that date coming out of a different culture, coming out of a different time, have any relevance to us? On and on these attacks would go, and the temptation is to put that aside so that we don't feel like there's anything that's holding us back from relating or being relevant in our culture. But what we miss is that in Scripture, there are some things it says that are vitally important to our lives and our interaction with both God and other people. And if we take that bait and we put that aside, even for what we think are good reasons, we're going to miss out on some things, some scriptures to look at. The first scripture I want to mention is Romans ten seventeen. It says this, for faith comes from hearing the message, or faith comes by hearing, and the message is heard through the word of Christ, the word of God, the word of Christ being the Bible. How does that verse tell us our faith grows? Well, 
when we spend time in the Bible, when we spend time reading, studying, meditating, memorizing, whatever word you want to use, one of the, the things that happens in our lives is that our faith grows. It increases. This is the means by which God grows your faith. How important is faith? Well, Hebrews tells us this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And so if faith is that important, you would think we want to have some of that. And faith isn't something you can conjure up. Faith is is something that God has designed that when you open this book, when you spend time in this book, when you get to know the ways of God and thereby get to know God himself, your faith increases. And so if faith comes by hearing, we need this book. What happens if we don't spend time with this book? What happens to our faith? Time in it makes it grow. Time out of it makes it shrink. We, we do this song um, with the daycare kids in chapel. Uh, we, because you're all there in chapel. Right? No, I, sometimes uh, I do it. They, they might have done it in here with us. Do you, you remember when they did the grow, 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 and shrink, shrink, shrink song? They start out and they get in the ball on the floor and we say, read your Bible, pray every day. Pray every day, pray every day, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. And we grow, grow, grow to your way, but we grow. Should we all try it? Would that be better? No. But neglect the Bible, forget to pray, forget to pray, forget to pray, and you'll shrink, shrink, shrink. We shrink, and we get down and see who's the smallest. And it's fun for the kids. You know, it's active. It's, you know, motion songs. But there's, there's reality to that, that when we spend time in God's Word, in the Bible, in the truth that sets us free, our faith will grow. When we distance ourselves from the Bible, our faith shrinks. If you go to Ephesians chapter 6, it talks about these ideas of, of the armor of God. And faith shows up in the armor of God, doesn't it? It is the shield of faith with which you are able to extinguish all the fiery darts of the enemy. Now, let's pretend. I know we don't work this way in our world. Warfare doesn't work that way. But let's say there's a fella, there's somebody that don't like you very much, and he's got a fiery dart. Let's make it safe. It's a glow-in-the-dark nerf. Okay, so our world is violent enough. We don't need So it's a glow-in-the-dark nerf. And if he gets you with the nerf dart, you're out. What size shield do you want to hide behind? Would you hide behind? I don't have a shield up here. Ah, here we go. How about this? It would be great if it has skin over it. Pretend there's a skin. Would you hide behind this? Would that work very well? No. You need something a little bigger, right? What you got? The box top. That's nice that you would think that would work for me, and I'm flattered, but I'm still exposed. I could I could get tiny, and it's not going to help. There's going to be parts sticking out. I could get nailed with a Nerf dart. Be something. What? The the pulpit, except it's glass. And if we weren't talking Nerf. I might be a little leery. But yeah, okay, it's getting a little bigger. So so the point is, you want a, you want a good-sized shield, right? And if somehow that shield of faith, that which we can sort of, and, and in the warfare of the day, that shield would be wrapped in, in soaked leather, and the darts, when it hit it, though they were fiery, would be extinguished, and, and the soldier would sort of kneel down and cower behind it. The bigger, the better, you would think. 
And here we are with, with this idea that the shield of faith, because we're not spending time in God's word and our faith isn't growing, but instead it's shrink, shrink, shrinking, our shield of faith is shrink, shrink, shrinking. And there's pieces, parts exposed and the enemy that Satan, like a roaring lion, seeking to devour us and shooting those fiery darts at us. He's got all sorts of places he can hit because the shield of faith is getting smaller and smaller. Not only that, but what's another part of the the uh, the army? I mean, excuse me, the armor of God, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God or the Bible. How did Jesus confront temptation? All three times he quoted scripture for him, the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy, interestingly. All three times, if you did our 40 days in the word study, you know, Rick Warren pointed out all three of those quotes are from Deuteronomy, which is the least read and well-known book in all the Bible of all 66 books. People spend the least amount of time in it. And he quotes from that, showing the value of what in our way of thinking is, you know, just maybe all these details and commandments. What good is that for Jesus? It was pretty good. It was the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Now, what kind of sword do you want to go into battle with? I don't know about you, but I'd like a sharp sword, yes? But if we don't spend time in the Word, we're going into battle with a butter knife. That's not very good. Our, our shield of faith is this big, and we're waving around the butter knife. Bring it on, Satan! How's that going to work? Not very well at all. And the first domino, and the second domino, and the third domino falls. John 15, verse 7. There's another place we learn. It says this, If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. That sounds pretty good, right? That somehow, when we, like Moses said in Exodus, spend time in the Word so that we get to know the ways of God and then get to know God, somehow it impacts our prayer life that when we ask, Because God's word is in us, it's not just something we've read. It's not just, okay, I got through three chapters. See, here's my problem. I like to get things done in this sense. If I start something, I have to finish it. Anybody else? Like, um, let me give you an example. I just upgraded to Microsoft 10, and I downloaded the Microsoft Solitaire collection. This is bad. And every day there's a daily challenge. And there's five different solitaire games every day, different puzzles with different goals. I can't go to bed at night until all five of those puzzles are beaten. I actually can't even get started in the morning very much. It's one of the first things I do in the morning when I turn on the computer is go to Microsoft Solitaire and go one, two, three, four, five. Klondike and Free Cell and Spider and I don't remember what the other pyramid and something else. I gotta beat them. I have to finish it. And and I, if you're like me, you've probably you've done a Bible reading plan. Yeah. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but sometimes for me it's just I got to get through it. It's a task. It's like okay, this says if I'm gonna read the Bible through in a year, I have to get through Genesis seven today. Ready, set, go. How fast can I do it? Because, you know, in the solitaire, there's a little clock in the corner. Some of them are time things. And I'm thinking everything is a, t- everything's a challenge. Challenge accepted. i got to get through it. And we do that. And, and not that you shouldn't maybe use those tools, but if it becomes just that, it's not 
what's happening here. We're not remaining in the Word, and the Word isn't remaining or abiding in us. It's just, again, I'm just reading my Bible. I'm just covering ground. I'm getting through pages. You ever read? I do this sometimes, whether it's because you're distracted or you're tired, and you're reading along, and somehow your mind goes somewhere else, and then you look down, and you're like, wait a minute. I'm like, the last thing I remember isn't this. What happened? And sometimes I'm doing that, and it's the Bible and the preacher. That's not supposed to happen. What do I do then? That's just reading. You know, I've got to get through that Bible reading plan. No, this is different than that. This is, God, show me your ways so that I can get to know you. I'm going to remain. I'm going to abide. I'm going to dwell. I'm going to spend time in your word. And your word then is going to get inside of me. And somehow that impacts my prayer life. I see answered prayer because my prayers are informed by what I know of God and his ways. And so I'm asking in his name and according to his will and some of these other things scripture points to. And the result is when I'm doing that with God, he's answering me because how I'm praying is impacted by how he's thinking and how he wants to work in the world. And then that answer emboldens me then to what? Pray more and pray for greater things and seek him more. It's it's a positive domino effect. But when we're not spending time in his word, when his words aren't abiding in us, one of the byproducts is our prayer life. Our prayers seem like they're not going anywhere, or maybe they're not answered. And sometimes the reason they're not answered is because we're spending a lot of time abiding in other things, and those desires are getting into us. There's a whole stream in the church that will tell you, if you just do this or do that, oh, God wants you wealthy. He wants you to have all you've ever wanted. You know, because Jesus drove a Cadillac, right? Maybe it was a Lincoln. I get confused sometimes. Jesus said things like, oxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't have anywhere to lay his head. Don't even have a place to call home. He didn't have a lot. He didn't live wealthy. And yet some people put that out there. That's what God really wants for you. And when that's where we're abiding and when we're looking around in the world and the culture is impacting us and its desires are abiding in us, we're beginning to be drawn to those things. And so our prayer life might sound a lot. Dear God, what I really need is a little more money. God, I'll tell you what, if I win the lottery, I will tithe. Amen. We've all prayed that. Actually, mine was, I think I've told you, Publishers Clearinghouse. That would be great, God. Just, you know, 5000 a week for life. Not too much to ask. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. I just want a few of them every week for life. No. I mean, we, we do that. And that's not what this says. This says, and so what happens? We, we don't abide in the word. It doesn't abide in us. We don't see answered prayer. We don't feel like God hears. So are we more or less likely to pray? Probably less. Or when we do pray, we're asking for smaller and smaller and smaller things. And when you see the early church, because they knew God and because they had that sense of abiding in him and his words in them, they asked incredible things and God delivered in incredible ways. There were signs and wonders. I'm not suggesting we're going to see miracles every week, but just last Sunday, the end of the service, we had two examples of people who were very ill, and the the prognosis wasn't good. And Jessa talked about her friend, Missy, who looked like she was going home. We talked about Carol Harrelson, who we've prayed for, and who now I I saw on on Facebook was taking steps this week. You know, and, and those are things that, 
a few weeks ago, that was medically speaking probably not good. And we, we hear that and our faith grows because we see God at work and, and we, we can believe for more rather than believe for less. And we see these dominoes start to fall. Now our, our shield of faith is tiny and, and our, our sword of the spirit is a butter knife. And the, the enemy's hitting us with all these temptations. And so that's what's drawing our attention. And our, our desires and our prayer life is, is focused on very maybe worldly things and not informed by the word of God, and, and the domino momentum keeps going. Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, one of those places often we talk about the Bible we look at. It says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness. The Bible is a very practical book. But then it says this, why are we given? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work, so that you in whatever God has gifted you uniquely for, can be thoroughly equipped to do that very thing. How does that come? You know, we can, in church world, we got a program for that. We'll buy this package, this six-week study, this 12-week study, and those are very helpful things. But ultimately, they're not always time spent in Scripture. This book is given so that you can be competent and capable to do what God called you to do. Best advice I ever got was in seminary. I don't remember who gave it to me. I wish I could remember the, the instructor or professor's name. But, but this was the advice he gave us uh, as our whole class. He said, listen, as a pastor particularly, as you kind of get into your ministry and as you have that weekly task of getting ready to preach, you're going to spend a lot of time reading stuff. You're going to spend a lot of time studying stuff. You're going to read a lot of books. And, and usually if you're in that level of of academics for preaching, you know, you're reading anyway. We Most of us like to read a lot. And this was the advice. He said, never spend more time reading books about the Bible than you spend time in the Bible itself. I thought that was great advice. Stuck with me all these years. I won't tell you how many because that's personal. Not that I'm running for president or anything. I will tell you my favorite Bible verse if you want that, but that's another story. Never mind. Um, but I thought that was good advice. The tempt- and there are a lot of great Christian books. There are a lot of great Christian authors. There are a lot of great Christian, even Bible studies. But more than that, our time should be spent in this book because this is the one that is useful for all of those things. And this is the, this is the book, the truth of God, that prepares us so that we're thoroughly equipped, capable, and competent to do God's work. Ever felt incompetent or not capable in a task you've been assigned? Probably all have, right? How'd that, how'd that work out for you? Did you go into it with enthusiasm? Did you say, please let me do something I don't feel ready to do? Most of us haven't. And so what happens in our life is we don't spend time with God, learning His ways, learning about Him. Something comes along. And it's an opportunity to serve God. But we don't feel capable because we haven't spent time in this book allowing it to equip us, to make us thoroughly equipped, competent for the task at hand. And so we shy away from that task. We sort of say, I don't know, or, or maybe find a reason not to. It could be, and I'm not saying it has to be okay that we need people in the nursery at church or, you know, we have this committee. I'm talking about just everyday life. You run into people that may ask you questions. 
may be about your faith. Are you a Christian? Why do you believe that? And tell me a little bit about it. And if we don't know God in his ways, if we're not well-versed in these verses, well, it's pretty well written here, right? Then we're going to maybe shy away from those opportunities because we're not equipped for that work. But spend time in this, getting to know the ways of God, and more than that, getting to know God himself, and somebody asks you, and you're ready to give that answer for the hope that is in you. It's natural. It's normal. It's what you would do to, to do it. And so these are some of the ways that we see momentum building away from Scripture. Our, our faith isn't growing, and, and, and our, our sword of the Spirit is dull, and we're not equipped, and our prayers aren't answered. And so we're backing further and further away from the truth that is the Word of God. And in our culture, there are people that would be thrilled if the church would just get off all their obsession with what we call the Bible. That would just be better for them. Because then we could do away with certain ideas. Like, here's an idea we should do away with. Why do we believe in some personification of evil called the devil? I mean, come on, isn't that just really a literary situation? Isn't that just sort of a very primitive couple, three, four thousand year old culture trying to deal with the phenomenon around them? They didn't have the scientific wherewithal to understand like we do today. And so they they gave that concept a name, Satan, Beelzebub, whatever. I mean, really, are you going to say that's what you want to hang to? And, and, And so we might be tempted to back away from the concept of a devil, a fallen angel who was one of the, the most powerful angels of God, cast out of heaven, and now taking a third of the angels with him, and now, and from then on, somehow launching an assault, though he could never touch God, who demonstrated his power, certainly trying to take all of us with him, he could, and so we back away from that, and no, maybe not. What's next to follow? Well, if there's no devil, what's this whole idea of Thing like hell. And really, that's pretty harsh. Eternal punishment? I mean, really? You, you think? Because, yeah, that's, I don't know. In fact, I'm saying this like it's an odd thing, but there was a book a few years ago you might have heard of, written by, a, at the time, a well-known, very popular young uh, preacher type who wrote a book basically saying there's no such thing as hell. And he tours all over the country, and people flock to auditoriums to hear that sort of message, because in the words of his book, love wins. So we don't need that idea. Well, if there's no devil and there's no hell, what's sin really about then? I mean, you know, we all make mistakes, right? Everybody makes mistakes, don't you? Is this the wrong crowd? We all make mistakes. We're, we're only human. But sin, well, that's kind of a harsh word, isn't it? That's, that's you know, really sin. Because if there's really no devil, he's not tempting you. The devil made me do it, as Flip Wilson used to say. And, and if there's no hell, which is what we say is the punishment for sin, then sin doesn't really matter anymore because, you know, we all just kind of make mistakes and, and God's like a loving God and a forgiving God, isn't he? I mean, won't he just kind of overlook that because of this? And if there's no, you know, and you see where this can go. 
the dominoes fall and the ball bounces around and the, the next part of the contraption goes off. And before you know it, because we've given up what is this book and the truth that it's based on, we've backed ourselves further and further away. So if there's no devil and there's no hell and there's no sin, why do we need to be saved? What are we, be, what are we saved from after all? I mean, aren't we as human, aren't we just really good at heart? I mean, I don't know if you ever watched the news. There have been some people that have done some horrible things, but their moms always say they were the nicest boys. I never saw it coming. And their neighbors are like, we're so shocked this would ever happen. Apparently, everybody is just great in this world. It's remarkable anybody ever does anything wrong. Right? That's, that's where we go. If there's no salvation... And really, this whole Jesus thing, does it matter? I mean, you don't need a Savior if you're not really lost. You don't need to be saved. You don't need a Savior. And then, really, let's talk about a guy that died and rose again. That, that doesn't happen, you know. Well, it happened once. I guess Lazarus could count, too. And then there's that thing in Elisha we talked about. And, and there's the boy, Jairus's daughter. Maybe it happened, but it happened once and never, like, for, for all. Like, people don't rise. And so we just, we're going to back away from Jesus. He's not really alive and seated at the right hand of the Father. So who is he really? Why do we need to listen? I mean, it's just, I'll say it's a slippery slope. But, but it's pretty, pretty bad area we can find ourselves in, yes? And it all starts because we just don't spend time in the Word. Not, not reading it, because we have to get through that reading plan, or because it's, we're told it's good for us, like vitamins and exercise. No, but because in this book, God can show us His ways and we can know Him. And in knowing Him, we become like Him. And in becoming like Him, and learning from him, our faith grows. And when our faith grows, we're able to resist those fiery darts. And because we have the sword of the Spirit honed and sharpened, we're able to confront the temptations that come our way and, and give an answer for the hope that's in us. And because his words abide in us, when we pray, we understand we're conversing with the eternal God of the universe who hears and who answers sometimes in miraculous ways so that we're emboldened to ask more. And when we ask more, then people might see in us this dynamic of faith that is unique and might wonder things like, how does that work? And we might be given the opportunity to answer them because we've spent time in Scripture. We've been thoroughly equipped for whatever those opportunities are, and we give the answer that, that opens the door for them to admit one like we once did. Yes, I'm a sinner. I'm not a mistaker, as Andy Stanley says. I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. And Jesus is the truth. And when you know the truth, the truth sets you free. And when the truth sets you free, you're free indeed. I'm sure some of you ladies might have watched Beth Moore's simulcast. She gave a poem, a lullaby. Any of you watch that? Okay. 
I know somebody who did, so just trust me. This, you've heard that, you know, rock-a-bye baby in the tree talk, which again, Lindsay, you got to put the baby in the tree. It's a good, it's a, it's a, here, here's her paraphrase. Rock-a-bye Christian, lulled by the world, when the wind blows, all hell will unfurl, but stay in your sleep, distracted or scared, so when I wreak havoc, you won't be prepared. summarize all that we've just talked about. When you draw away from this book that we call the Bible, that is alive and active, that penetrates, pierces, convicts, but ultimately shows us the very ways of God so that we might know Him, not as information, not as entertainment, not even as inspiration, but as a means of relationship. That God would reveal himself to you and invite you to know him and invite you to trust in what he has already done for you. So yeah, maybe we should quit just reading our Bible. Maybe we should allow it permeate who we are. Maybe we should abide in it, as Jesus said, and allow it to abide in us and see if that might not be the difference that this world so desperately needs to see. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us. us in in your word that you are love. And I thank you that you demonstrated your love for us by the cross that while we were yet sinners Christ died. And I thank you that, that that love was so perfectly mixed with your truth in the person of Jesus that we're given a great example of how we might live our lives for you. But Lord, we need what you have provided for us in your word, the revelation that you have made of yourself so that we might be people who are people of answered prayer because we abide in you and your words abide in us we might be people whose faith grows because we faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. That we might be people who are thoroughly equipped for every good work. Lord, thank you that you've given us your word, that you inspired it, that we can trust it. Lord, that it is authoritative. It is inerrant. Lord, that it has been preserved all of these years so that we can pick it up and in it, learn your ways that we might know you. Lord, help us to be people who seek you in that way. You said, if you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
Lord, wholeheartedly may we come after you. Lord, I pray today that maybe there's someone here who doesn't know you as Savior. Who doesn't know the grace that you demonstrated on the cross. The forgiveness that you offer when we recognize and admit our sin. And the life that you give, a life that is abundant and eternal. Lord, if today would be that day when they would turn to you and in faith confess their sin and call upon you as Lord and Savior, that that you would hear and answer and save and deliver. For in the person of Jesus, they would know the truth and the truth would set them free. Lord, we give you now these moments of our invitation, of our time of response. May you have your way, I pray, in Jesus' name.